the law in my market is not being enforced. Most of my competitors don't pay sales tax. Most of my competitors are not licensed to do business in the District of Columbia. Many of my competitors have had their LLCs revoked. And I know because I called them up, I know that the enforcers are asleep at the wheel. That was Aaron Sadian. He's the CEO of a platform company providing on-demand care services. And I'm Bama Athreya, host of The Gig. This podcast is about technology and how it's disrupting jobs of all kinds, even jobs you'd think would have to be done by other people. This season, Who Cares, is about people and platforms providing care and domestic work. Through both seasons of The Gig, we've met workers and organizers, academics and legal experts, people in government, but we haven't yet spoken to a businessman. I didn't think anyone running a platform would want to talk to me. After all, I'm clearly skeptical about this whole business model. In season one of the gig, we talked a lot about how the business model for ride hailing hooks people and then does a bait and switch, pushing drivers to do longer and longer rides for less and less money. You might remember my guest, Michelle Miller, who leads a labor rights organization and is an expert on how algorithms are used to squeeze workers. It's important to start with what is the corporate incentive of the design of the algorithm? And what they want, above all, is to ensure that there is this endless supply of drivers so that you're building up a customer base that feels addicted to your app and that you are optimizing the app so that it has enough information on the people that are using it that they feel like it's the only place they can come back to. And so the kind of data that Uber or Lyft or these platforms are collecting is where is the driver and where are they willing to go? And what is the lowest amount that we could possibly pay this driver in order for them to go the farthest? And again, always, what is the lowest amount of money that we can pay people in order to get them to go there? I asked my guests for this season how the business models worked for care platforms because providing care is so different from ride hailing. Here's what Alexandra Matiscu from Data and Society had to say about care and domestic work platforms in the U.S. A lot of the business models, they're very extractive. So a lot of them take a pretty significant cut of the workers pay, especially platforms like Handy. If a worker canceled within a certain time frame, they might have a penalty fee that was then actually extracted from their future pay. So they actually interviewed some workers who were like working off debt off of the platform because they had racked up a bunch of fees. They got like a penalty fee for, for broken equipment or something and they were working it off. Alexandra told me how platforms managed to penalize and control workers, even while claiming that these workers were independent contractors. In the last episode, we heard from Kola Zainab in India, and she had a similar description of how personal care platforms were profiting by making sure so-called independent contractors were beholden to the company. There's very insidious ways that platforms devise to keep bloating up their profits. One has to do with the commission model itself. Urban Company works on this credit model where to accept a task, you have to first upfront directly pay the commission to the platform and then you go on to deliver the service. And when you are paid, you earn back the commission that uh, you have already paid out to the platform. And often this refund of the commission amount is delayed. 
So which means that workers can go six months of just delivering services after services and continuing to pay commission to the platform, but they are not getting their income back because urban companies holding on to it at the cost of the workers. In country after country, discussing platform after platform, I became more and more convinced that business models were fundamentally exploitative. They rely on being able to extract more and more profit from workers who were already poorly paid and vulnerable to exploitation. And when just squeezing out more work isn't enough, some platforms have found creative ways to put workers in debt to them. Was it even possible to do things differently and succeed? Aaron believes it is. I asked him to convince me. Here's what he said about the business model he launched. Well-paid maids is the DC area's only living wage home cleaning company. Uh, we pay $20 an hour to start and offer all of our employees, not contractors, W-2 employees, a full benefits package. And so that includes 22 paid days off a year, health, dental, and vision insurance, and employer paid commuting costs, as well as a few other uh, minor benefits. Uh, it, it sets us apart in the market. and It's part of why I founded the business. Wait a second. This sounds too good to be for real, right? I wasn't about to just take Aaron's word for it. I asked to speak to a cleaner who worked for well-paid maids. Here's Siam. My name is Siam. My first name actually first name Nishad, last name Siam. So people call me by my last name Siam. I live in uh, Springfield, Springfield, Virginia. And uh, yeah, yeah, just outside Washington, D.C. My original country is Bangladesh. So I came in the U.S. like in 2005. And I've been living this country like almost 16 years. Siam told me about how, after coming to the U.S., he worked in fast food outlets for many years. He talked about working two jobs at once, double shifts, coming home at 10 or 11 at night and not seeing his family. Because that's how many immigrants actually managed to get by in this land of opportunity. Working round the clock. Now let's hear what he said about his experience with well-paid maids. After I get hired, uh, they give me the schedule and everything. They have like office or house cleaning. So they uh, give me the schedule. A day I have a, like uh, one bedroom or two bedroom or two bathroom, you know. It depends how big is the house is. And then I keep working with well-paid mates and they keep liking my job. And my customer is keep uh, giving me the re uh, review. So the feedback was nice. They always give me the good feedback. And Aaron say, hey, you, you are doing a great job. You are one of the, one of the best employees for us. The other jobs, when I, I work in Subway, Roti, and other, other restaurants also, I never get that kind of, that much benefit. I never get any health insurance. I never get or paid for overtime. The well-paid mates has two paid vacation, which is Thanksgiving and I think Christmas. We have sick sick pay also. We have sick sick days. So and other jobs I don't we never I never get that benefits. So I've been working for well paid mates like three years now. I was ready to ask Aaron more about how the company could manage to compete in a market where every other company was so much more predatory. First I asked about the client base. We, we have a lot of customers who have tried um, Handy specifically in the past because, you know, they targeted young professionals, which was originally the core of our audience as well. Um, and, you know, you have a, a variety of folks either through Handy, HomeAdvisor, TaskRabbit, services like those. 
that are getting their homes cleaned that way. Uh, when we started out, it was uh, the folks who are willing to pay a premium for you know this weird new cleaning service that is is advertising not on price but on how we we treat our workers. I would say about half of our customers are folks that are really interested in an ethical home cleaning, but there are others that are just impressed by our reputation at this point, our, our quality, our online reviews that, that reflect that, and are simply okay with paying a, a premium for our service to know that they're getting a, a good cleaning. And in terms of age, it, it is still something that skews uh, towards a, a younger audience. 25 through 49 is probably 60% of our consumer base. What was it like breaking into the market with a very different profile in terms of the competition's attitude toward things like wages and working conditions? The key for me was you know, really being able to just brand it correctly and honestly. People can smell BS in this space, right? We are all kind of already accustomed to hearing that something is green. You kick the tires on it and you find out the only thing green about the product is the color on the outside. So I think people were intrigued by a business that was advertising almost exclusively on its labor practices, right? And that helped us find the people who would want to find us because that's the kind of thing that resonates with them. They later found out, yes, we, we do a good job cleaning your home. And I really think the success of the business is all about making sure that the brand is, is very transparent about what we believe in. And then, of course, that we, we can back it up. Even the name, well-paid maids, it's almost like a it's like a mission lock mechanism for us, right? Like that always has to be true. If it's not true, we either have to change the name of the company or we have to change our practices. I pushed Aaron to talk about one of my biggest issues with the platform economy, how client ratings are used. Those one to five star ratings you put into the app after the service, we heard from virtually every other guest on this podcast that the ratings aren't actually used to give workers feedback or to improve services. Workers might not even get the information about who rated them poorly or why. Instead, platforms use the ratings to discipline and control workers. And we've heard that on many care platforms, workers can't rate clients, not even when they are abusive. How was Well-Paid Maids addressing this? So we invite feedback from our customers after every cleaning. They get an email that you know, gives them the opportunity where we just, you know, see what their satisfaction is. And they also, of course, have the different public platforms that they can use, like Yelp and Google reviews. And we, of course, get feedback in that way. But I think one thing that employees appreciate about our company is that, you know, this digital feedback is not, it's not the be all end all, right? There's a layer of middle management that adds context that gives the employee a chance to offer their side of what happened, if it was a complaint, for example. I pressed Aaron to tell me what he did to ensure that workers could provide feedback about clients, especially clients that made them feel unsafe. We fired customers, and that's a crucial ability for maintaining staff morale, and I think being able to guarantee a, a, a safe workplace. And so we, we have fired customers. I don't think anything has risen to the level of abuse. You know, we'll fire somebody for being a jerk. So we were closed during the, the start of the pandemic, mid-March through August of 2020. Uh, we were just shut down. And we reopened in August 2020. And we required that folks be out of their homes during a cleaning. So they could come and meet the cleaner to let them in. Uh, everybody had to be masked to do that, but that we would only clean empty homes. And so we had people that tried to violate that. We had people who tried to like just hang out in one room of their house or they wouldn't mask. 
And that's the kind of situation where, you know, you really do want to have an employer that you can call and who can make sure that you're still financially whole when you leave and who can yell at the customer. It's, it's very helpful for everyone, but most helpful for the workers to be able to defer to a company policy. Or they don't even have to say, call my boss. They can call their boss and their boss can say, go home. We have a lot of customers who are using us in the first place because they want cleaners to be treated well. So our customers do tend to treat cleaners well. Our discussion on ratings got us into a topic I really didn't expect to be discussing with a CEO. I asked Aaron Moore about what he and company management did to ensure the algorithms weren't in charge. You know, obviously I don't run a gig economy style business, but we do offer online booking, right? So some of the look and feel of what you go through isn't so different than what you would experience if you use TaskRabbit or, or HomeAdvisor or something like that. And so I think some of the ways that we differentiate, you know, we offer information about our employees on our website. We give users the ability to select which cleaner they want. A lot of the big apps don't allow for that. They don't allow for kind of user-directed repeat business. I guess just because it's not in their interest, it creates kind of relationships, which I think would let people then go off platform, right? And strike their own deals because ours works the other way and, and that people are able to pick their cleaner that they tend to, right? They find somebody they like, they keep using that person when they come back to book again. And ultimately they, they often set up recurring cleanings with those folks. You know, at any given time, most of our cleaners, about half of their calendar are folks that they're just set up on regular schedules with. Uh, we don't send people in teams. We send a single person to your home it means that they're there longer than someone would be as part of a three or four person team. It allows people to, to develop an actual relationship with the person that's coming to their home, petting their dog, seeing where they sleep. I mean, this is a really intimate thing. And I think people appreciate that basically the, the kind of value proposition of a lot of app-based employment or, or, or gigs is kind of turned on its head. Where, well, no, I don't want that. I don't want to just hire someone who slips in and out like a ghost into my home. I'm going to give them the security code and they're going to meet my children and pets and they're going to see where I, I live and, and all that. This got us into yet another topic I didn't expect to discuss. The gig economy has been training people to believe that technology has all the answers. There's an app for everything. Can you retrain people to understand that there's no replacement for a good relationship with a care provider? Can you help them understand the app is just a tool, a tiny step, but they're responsible for more than just the quick click. You know, folks of a, of a certain age or generation got used to buying something in a commodified way. And so if you just think of who the person is that can even wrap their head around the idea of, okay, I'm going to go to a website and, you know, in one minute, I'm going to book this many bedrooms, this many bathrooms, and I'm going to be happy with booking and cleaning that way. And I don't need to meet the person. I don't need to interview anybody. I do think that there's a whole set of mental preparation that have already occurred. In, in our target audience, which is that you know, folks are used to buying things that are mediated through some kind of online interaction, up to and including things that involve pretty intimate human interaction, right? Somebody coming to your home to clean is obviously very involved and, and very intimate. I think consumers pretty quickly figure out that in this kind of arrangement, what's most important to them is not just cost. And so the kind of traditional model of the gig economy doesn't quite fit with cleaning. There is a kind of core problem with doing, I think, cleaning work through the gig economy platform. And here's yet another surprise. Aaron is telling us there is a core problem with the gig economy or platform model when it comes to domestic work. I couldn't agree more. 
Yet as we've learned, there aren't a lot of better alternatives. We talked about whether it was possible to change that. Given what we covered in the last season of this podcast, the whole fight around Prop 22 in California and the gig companies making a huge PR play around the idea that by being an independent contractor, you had all this flexibility that was going to be taken away if you became an employee. And here you are, and you are describing providing people with employment, but with a whole lot of different types of flexibility in that employment. So what's your take on this whole larger debate? I think that the debate is intentionally configured to imply that everybody is really an independent contractor. There's too much bending over backwards to try to help people misclassify their workforce. There's a lot of effort and energy being put into how can we put a, a nice human face on these apps? How can we make the situation marginally better for workers who are, are caught up in them? I think that you know folks doing app-based work in, in the vast majority of cases are misclassified and that to make things nicer and more tolerable on the edges to try to quote unquote protect this flexibility that is supposedly so prized. I think a lot of the arguments that are put forth around flexibility imply that people on those apps are truly kind of owner operators. They have other forms of leads that are coming in. I think we all really know that's not how we operate. Naturally, I had to ask Aaron how much more expensive it was to provide fair wages and working conditions. We're more expensive than them. We're not like radically more expensive, but it's just what it should cost. Most of the competition happens on like price and like ease of booking. And that's just something we don't even play with at all. And so we are much more expensive than the competition. It makes things harder for us in that we can't just be a living wage cleaning company. At the price point that is required to make the, the labor model work, the, the resulting service has to be really good. And so, uh, you know, that's why we have a training program. In my view, customers know that your staff is being treated well and compensated fairly. Uh, you won't be punished. And we certainly haven't been punished. When I started, we were pricing one bed, one baths at, which I just use as our benchmark, as at 120 bucks. And now we're up to $200. We've only been in business for around four years. And so it's, it's a large price increase over a small amount of time. And I can count on one hand the number of recurring customers that we've lost because I said, I can't, I can't tolerate this price anymore. What do you think would need to change about the rules of the game so that more companies like yours would thrive? In my view, there are no quick fixes. W-2 is a good model. We should use the law to corral more and more forms of employment back into where it belongs. I think that for more businesses like mine, the government needs to enforce the law. We, we do actually need to have real enforcers. In cleaning, the average price is dragged down by a whole host of illegal practices. There are some unique aspects of cleaning that make it easier to do what I do, but I don't think what I do is transferable to every industry. For it to be more transferable to every industry, I think there needs to be stronger enforcement so that prices are not dragged down by this kind of illegal floor uh, by competitors who are just skirting all kinds of, of labor and, and registration and legal regulation. My conversation with Aaron reinforced an important point about the gig economy. It's not the technology that's the problem. Apps and websites are just tools. It's how we use them that determines whether or not they help us create the kind of economic and social relationships we want in the world. I enjoyed hearing that it was possible to use these tools in ways that were fair to workers. 
But after all, as Aaron himself said, that's something that wouldn't really be necessary if our labor laws were well enforced. To be sure, high-road companies like well-paid maids play an important role in demonstrating that it's possible to play by the rules and succeed. But that's not the prevailing model in today's gig economy. How do we change that? When I talked to ride-hailing drivers, I learned they were able to organize and turn the tide, winning important legal victories and labor protections from companies like Uber. Can care workers, dealing with a fragmented set of companies around the world, achieve anything like these kinds of gains? In the next episode of The Gig, Turning the Tables, we'll learn more about the surprising answer to that question and some ways in which worker organizations themselves are taking control of technology and making it the answer rather than the problem. I'm Bama Athrea, and you've been listening to The Gig. My producer is Evan Papp at Empathy Media Lab. You can support us by visiting our page on Anchor FM. That page is anchor.fm backslash the gig dash podcast. You can find our previous episodes there too. The Gig is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. To check out more shows on topics like this one, just visit laborradionetwork.org.